can't really sing. <laughs> la 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 yeah. Hello and welcome to the SBNY podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy and I am your host. If you have not done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can do that by simply searching Sports Blog New York Podcast or going to sportsblognewyork.com, clicking on the podcast app, and on any of those articles, it will lead you in the right direction. The podcast is also on Google Play as well. So again, search Sports Blog New York Podcast in Google Play and you will find that. And subscribe, rate, and review, especially if you like what you have been hearing. So today we have a very special guest. He's been on the pod once before. He is a writer for MLB.com, mostly covering the Mets, but he does a, an array of things. His name is Joe Trezza. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe Trez. That's with two Zs, no A. But without further ado, Joe Trezza, welcome to the podcast. What's up, man? Thanks, Pete. Uh, I'm glad to be back here in, uh, we're in Brooklyn this time, so it's got a little different feel to it. But uh, I'm ready for the season, and I hope everybody else is too. Yeah, you know, driving into Brooklyn today over the Verrazano Bridge, the beautiful Verrazano Bridge, That's it is raining. Best. And it's like gross outside, but as I was driving on the loop to the Bell Parkway, I got an image of the bridge with like some clouds literally covering up uh, the tips, and it was like scary but beautiful. It was, it was great. It's worth the seventeen dollar toll, I think. Hey, I still live in Staten Island, so it's much less for me. I don't know if your plates are yeah, switched I'm, over don't or tell what. Anybody, but I'm still on the plan. <laughs> I hope they on the reduced plan. Hopefully, they're not listening. <laughs> but we're here to talk a lot about. Uh, baseball top to bottom obviously the season starts off less than a week in less than in a week uh, but let, we'll touch on the world baseball classic in a second but then we'll talk a lot about the, the real talk that's running baseball right now and it's regarding the speed of the game especially with what Rob Manfred has come out with talking about recently in uh, his publicity run and then we'll touch on some Mets and Yankees storylines and we'll do a little NL preview a little AL preview Touch on some big storylines, some big players to watch, some fun storylines going on. And is there really a better time than the beginning of baseball season? I mean, the weather gets nicer. You have games on all the time. Your favorite teams are on every night. That's like the best part. And like I said in the beginning, the weather is going to be nice again. So what better time of year is there? You always kind of get that like little tingling feeling, I think, in, my, in your stomach. At least I do. Um, especially now, even with these late spring games, I don't know, you see the sun start to hit the field like a certain way, and it just reminds you of, of spring and summer, and uh, you know the games are getting going again, so that always makes me happy. And for me, it's uh, the smells, too. I don't know, the, like the smell brings back memories of like either just playing Little League High School or College or whatever, and uh, just being out, outside. But also, this year in particular, happens only every couple of years, we had the World Baseball Classic, which kind of ramps up the intensity of baseball season oh, yeah. well before the season starts. Especially if you're working it. And yeah, for you, that's what I want to talk to you about because uh, now we're a little bit removed from the World Baseball Classic, but just because we have you here, and again, Joe Trezza, MLB.com writer, this is your first year working as a journalist covering the World Baseball Classic. Uh, did that change your experience? It was a good baseball classic in general, but what was the experience like for you? Well, it changed it in the sense that it had me waking up at 5 a.m. for the Asian games uh, almost every day. And then sometimes working until two or three for the late games over there. But like, um, so I mean, we were we were kind of covering it full full steam and full throttle. Um, and I thought it was a great tournament. I thought it was the best tournament, um, you know, of, of the four that baseball's hosted. And I think baseball was really happy with it. I know they they uh, set uh, attendance records for the tournament. Um, I was at a few games in Miami, and to see the fan turnout down there, especially with the Dominican fans. Um, 
predominantly was an amazing thing to experience in person. It was really great. And the baseball was awesome. You know, from the first game to the last with Israel and, you know, they had their great run to start the tournament and then all the way through the USA's run, Adam Jones's catch and all that. I thought it was flawless. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to not lie here. I'm going to be honest, as I try to do on the podcast all the time. I wasn't that excited for the World Baseball Classic. I think, and I said this on the pod last week, the timing of it is kind of tough because you have the NCAA tournament, which really just takes over America uh, as one of the biggest playoff or tournament-style uh, systems we have in all of sports here. So it, the World Baseball Classic kind of gets jumbled up in between all of that. But after watching some games... Especially, you know, I actually also had a couple friends down in Miami for the Dominican uh, game down there, and the crowd was absurd. And seeing, I was in it. I was in the middle of it. Right. It's so like seeing that and then seeing the USA actually come to play in this World Baseball Classic, yeah. bringing that all together, it, it made for a really great storyline and some exciting baseball before the season started, which is you just don't get all the time. It was amazing to see how fans kind of uh, experience baseball in other places, right? So. The only big way I can describe it is that it was like kind of the way that we experience college football games, right? So when you're a freshman in college or, or senior or whatever it is, you go to the games and you, you're in the student section and you're standing on every play. No, no matter what, there's like no backs to the seats. You're up every single play. There's no downtime. You're singing songs. You're chanting. You're doing all this stuff. And that's how the Dominican fans watch a baseball game, uh, especially a game that they're really into. I know that's how Asian fans watch games. I know that's how the games were in Japan. Um, you know, there's just there's full, it's 30,000 people full chanting and screaming and, and they're hanging on every pitch. You know, they're cheering at balls, you know, ball two. You know, there's like no downtime whatsoever. And uh, it's like a big party, really. And it it's sounds like, fun. It's way more fun than the way we watch baseball games. And, and uh, I, I kind of, you kind of like can't go back now. You know, now like a boring Thursday right. game in April is going to kind of feel even flatter, I think. So I think we should take uh, a little you know, note from, from the way they do things because uh, they have a great time. So your message isn't even at the players as much as it is at the fans. The fans need to have more fun at the games, it sounds like to me. And I, I, can't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I love getting a little rowdy out uh, at City Field or Yankee Stadium. Oh, if you see the way... So the, a lot of the discussion kind of hinged upon like you know, the styles of play, right? Like how the Dominican players or the Puerto Rican players play differently to compared to the American players. But it the larger difference is in the way the fans act at the games. And um, the the Latin fans, I mean, most of them are American, but you know what I of mean? Of course, yeah. The people who um, support, you know, with the Puerto Ricos and the Dominican Republic. Right. They, they, they just, they, they go all out. It's like a block party. And they loved it. It was great. And that's something you don't hear a lot, so I'm glad you brought it up. And you're only getting that on the Sports Blog New York podcast with my guest, Joe Trezza from MLB.com. That it's the the fans make the difference of the fun of the game as well. Yeah. So you know a lot of talk has been happening since the World Baseball Classic, and that's exactly what we're going to get into. Is you see these Latin countries and the way they play and their their extra swag, if you want to call it that, their style. That you know a lot of homegrown USA players don't exactly have those same attributes of you know if you want to just to be general, and I, I hate being general here, the bat flips or like the swag when you're throwing the ball to first from the infield, turning double plays, uh, to generalize it, you see that more flair with the Latin countries, right. and it's something that certain fans, especially younger fans, want to see. Uh, do you think that this World Baseball Classic is going to have an effect on the regular season of the MLB this year, or do you think it's still longer than that and this more fun game that we're all hoping for 
isn't quite there yet. Well, I, I think that like the you know the, the flair that the players have kind of feeds off the energy that the fans bring, and and vice versa, kind mm. of like a chicken and the egg thing. But um, really, the and, and Ian Kinsler got a lot of slack before the championship came for his comments, which I think were kind of taken out of context. Um, and he did try to go back and just try to set the record straight a little bit. And the fact is that here. Uh, Players here are just taught the game a little differently than players there are taught the game, you know. And this, it's just a cultural thing. There's just different values in the way that it is. So to answer your question, I think guys like Javi Baez are getting almost universally favorable coverage in American media for the way they play. And so I don't think fans are, or I don't think the public is, you know, the. I don't think that they're being disparaged for that. On the field, though, I don't think you're going to see Ian Kinsler doing no-look tags and, you know, showing up a pitcher or whatever it is because in his mind, you know, there's a respect element and that's just the way that he was brought up. And it's not going to be like a bait-and-switch. It's not going to be all of a sudden these players who played one way their whole lives are just going to say, oh, you know what, screw my whole life, my right, whole right. life, my morals. Like, I'm just going to start being this and that. So, it, like you said, it's not just going to change right now, but... There's no reason that these different styles can co can't coexist, in my opinion. No, they, of course they can coexist, but it's also you know it's like on a case to case basis too. Like, uh, you remember the Jose Batista home run against Sam Dyson, right? I'm glad you brought it up because we right. talked about we that talked when about you were back on the pod, when, the Hall of Fame podcast. And, and the fact of the matter is, watching Javi Baez play is not going to make Sam Dyson feel any more disrespect, any less disrespected. <laughs> By that flip, right? That's just that's how he feels. That's how he is. That's his constitution. Now, if someone bat flips against Fernando Rodney, I don't think Fernando Rodney's losing a lot of sleep that night because Fernando Rodney throws an arrow in the air when he blows a save. So it's all <laughs> like a case to case kind of thing, you know. Well, let's move on from the style of flair and swag to the actual style of baseball and the speed of the game because if you're listening to sports talk radio and reading different articles and you're keeping up with baseball prior to the start of this season everybody's been hearing a lot about the speed of the game the pace of play how young fan uh, not young fans but young athletes aren't as much into baseball as maybe past generations so some people think it's a bigger problem than others and i'm not picking a side here but it's clearly a topic that's being talked about so rob manford has been on a publicity tour if you want to call it that talking about how they're trying to change it. So where do you stand on this subject? Do you think changes need to be made? Do you think the right changes are being made? And do you think it's a true problem, uh, pace of play? Well, let me just get this out of the way first and say that baseball financially right now is the most successful that it's ever been, and it's only getting more successful in terms of finance. Now, that said, um, uh, we, you know, we... Last year we saw the Cubs, which is one of their best brands, um, with mo some of the most, the largest appeal, do very well, and it was a huge story, and baseball really benefited from that. So I don't think the game is, is dead by any means, and I don't think it's dying in in the way that a lot of people like say that it kind of is. Now that said, it's not the Snapchat game, which basketball is the Snapchat game, right? So. Um, you know, there is kind of a disconnect. Well, what exactly there. do you mean by that? Because I think I understand, but just in case anybody listening doesn't know what you mean by Snapchat Well, games. I mean, there are like a lot of, uh, I know a lot of preteens and, and teenagers, like the way that they consume the game now is on social media apps like Snapchat or Twitter and Instagram. Know, Instagram. And, and like basketball is a very Snapchatable game, a very Instagrammable game, you know, a very GIF heavy game. GIF. I don't ever know how to say it. Um, <laughs> Depends but, who you ask. Right. So but you can Snapchat a dunk, right? And it's. That's like one of the greatest things that Snapchat was built for, right? 
And so that the game kind of translates to those mediums very well. Baseball's kind of lacking a little bit in that department, but what it makes up for it, its strength, is in its its tradition and its um, that whole kind of like traditional ethos that it has, where it's appealing to certain types of people. Now, that's out of the way. That said, um, I think I don't think there's a pace of play problem. I think there's a rate of action problem, and there's a very very uh, big distinction, and it's a distinction that Commissioner Rob Manfred knows and identifies very well. And I think that's the biggest disconnect, where people think that they just focus on time of game, right? The game's too long, we can't have all these pitching changes, whatever, right? But no one's complaining about a game that lasts four hours between the Yankees and Red Sox that is back and forth and thrilling and, and tense and, and, you know, engaging. It's about more about these games in the middle of the season on an April or on an August afternoon or whatever that has a lot of pitching changes. So it's not as clear-cut as just time of game. Right. That's not the biggest thing. Um, the important thing is rate of action, which is basically how much is going on on the field. Right. So how many balls are put in play is a big part of that. Um, we had the most strikeouts in Major League Baseball again last year for I think the fifth or sixth consecutive year. Um, at the same time, home runs are way up to historic levels. So what you have is a game that is growing more static by the year, and it's becoming very much more a three-outcome sport than it was even five, six years ago. Three outcomes are strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And this is where the problem is, because the advancement in relief pitching, in particular, has made hitting so difficult that hitters are adjusting their approach to kind of try to be more efficient in their outcomes, right? So they're trying to hit home runs at all costs, more so than they were 10 years ago. And what's being squeezed out of the game is situational stuff. Uh, base hits to right with a guy on, on second, or sacrifice flies, or bunts. And these are the things that are kind of, if you want to say dying, I mean, like they're becoming less common in and the game. I'm glad you bring that up, because we made the parallel to... Uh basketball with the whole social media aspect, right? So, you know, you could get a Russell Westbrook dunk that, you know, blows the whole internet up. Everybody's right. talking about it. Meanwhile, the Thunder lost the game, and nobody right. even knows. Nobody cares that they lost. Right. right. Exactly. So That's it, what I mean by Snapchatable. Exactly. Yeah. But now moving on to what you're talking about, about the three outcome, it's a, this efficiency era that we live in, right? Yeah. So teams are, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree, teams are devaluing the strikeout on the offensive end. Yeah. So the Angels don't care if Mike Trout Strike at, strikes out as much as anybody in the league as long as he hits 30 home runs, drives in over 100 RBIs, steals some bases, and plays good defense. Right. And, it, and, it's, and it's influencing how the game is measured, too. So, like, a few years ago, Mike, Mike Trout led the league in strikeouts, and he won the Most Valuable Player Award. So could, we, were, we could see where, you know, our what, what we value, where that stuff And real quick, I know you're not a basketball guy, <clears throat> James Harden and Russell Westbrook are both the top one, two out of three candidates who might win the MVP, right. James Harden's going to break the record for most turnovers in, the, in a season. Right. Russell Westbrook is right behind him, also breaking that record for most turnovers in a season. So it's actually a really weird but similar parallel to baseball, yep. how the strikeouts getting devalued, the turnovers getting devalued, because all they care about is the efficiency of getting runs across the plate, right. if and you will. That, that's, that has to do with the metrics. And basketball is kind of emerging, kind of like entering this sabermetric revolution, maybe like, eight to ten years after baseball did. And um, I think that they're going to eventually, down the line, run into the similar perceptional problems that baseball has now. I mean, uh, and, and 
and it's like coming from a good place, you know, like they're trying to be more efficient, like you're saying, and, and their arguments are sound. It's just kind of affecting the way the game is played on the field. And the question is, does that translate to as entertaining of a product as maybe it was in the past? Yeah, and to talk on some numbers real quick, <clears throat> you mentioned how home runs were at a historic high last year. They were at such a high that they haven't been that high since the peak of the steroid era. Right. So people love to say... Oh, you know, you steroids weren't that bad. That was the most exciting time in baseball we had. Well, you know what? We had that many home runs last year, and those same people who were complaining two years ago are still complaining. Uh, but, but look at the strikeout totals. I, but that, that's, that's where it comes to the, that's the, difference. the real point. And this article in Sports Illustrated highlights this. Strikeouts have been consistently increasing since the steroid era. So maybe back then you didn't have as many strikeouts. You had more home runs. Now we have the same amount of home runs, way more strikeouts. But you also had balls in play then, like... Uh, just something as simple as three ground balls to short in an inning, right? It's the same thing as striking out three guys in an inning, but it takes much quicker, and people are moving. Things are happening, right? We're keeping our eyes on a swivel. We we, we feel like uh, the game is progressing in a, in a certain way, right? So you could strike out three guys, throw 27 pitches in an inning, have a clean inning, and that inning can take 30 minutes or whatever it is. So um, Manfred has... What the league is proposing is trying to kind of fix these, or at least make adjustments to these situations. And one of the things they proposed was raising the strike zone. And so that would, you know, eliminating the bottom half of the strike zone or the bottom third or quadrant or whatever, um, in theory, it would get more balls in play. Now, some argued that uh, it would result in more walks. But again, it's just an experiment that the game is... And, and that's something I definitely want to point out, too. So people get get heated very quickly with some of these things that Rob Manfred comes out with. So you hear about how in the 12th inning or later, a team is going to automatically start with a guy on second. They're trying that out in the minors. They already, if correct me if I'm wrong, they took away the actual four-pitch intentional walk. They did that. So no, that's a real the thing. the only change that's going to happen this season. So people start to you know freak out about some of these things that you hear about. So first off, I'm going to say the whole second guy on second base to start in the 12th inning it's not happening yet. There's a better chance of it never happening than it happening. So first off, everybody just take a chill pill, relax. It's not happening yet. Your game isn't getting changed forever. And the intentional walk thing. I was talking to a baseball coach. Uh, he's a high school coach. He was a guy who played in the minors in his in his heyday, and he hated it. He said, "What about that one time who where you know somebody reaches out and puts a ball in play on intentional walk? Right. What about the time where it's a wild pitch?" And I said, "Yeah, great. That doesn't happen very often." But on the other side, you take away the four-pitch intentional walk, what are you saving? 25 seconds? Maybe? Like, how much time are you actually saving? 30 seconds. That's not changing a four-hour game, a three-and-a-half-hour game. So do you think these little changes that are taking place or are being tested in the minors are what's actually going to put baseball back on a path of quick play? Or do you think it's just a bunch of, um, you know, uh, gimmicky stuff that make the image of quicker play? Well, well those are... You know, those are really the things that Manfred's focusing on right now. There is what he calls eliminating dead time. And I think that's a, a smart play at this point because um, he kind of has to uh, propose what he knows can, you know, he has a chance of, of, actu of something that's actually happening in negotiations, right? So the Players Association and, and the league are in kind of this headlock in terms of these changes because the players don't want any of these changes and the fans might want some of them. So... Um, I think these little things are the things that can keep the game as intact as it is now, right, while possibly helping the situation 
as much as you can at this moment in time. And so that's why I think he's focusing on them. And you, you could also say it's really not hurting much. Yeah, right? I, w- I would say it's not, exactly. Uh, so, again, this is the Sports Blog New York Podcast. I'm Peter Kennedy, joined here with MLB.com writer Joe Trezza. You can follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow. Tweets out some insightful stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. And he's at Joe Trez. That's Joe Trez with two Zs, no A. Give me that one, Pete. Oh, yeah, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you all day. Um... But we're going to get into Mets and Yankee stuff. We're going to get into this little NLAL preview. But one last thing I want to talk about with the whole moving the game forward, not only regarding pace of play, but also touching on building brands and building up superstars, right? So I heard Rob Manfred on the Michael K show on Tuesday evening, and he said that there is a new focus for MLB marketing to highlight superstars, like the likes of Mike Trout and Chris Bryant and you know, say Noah Syndergaard or if Gary Sanchez becomes a true star, they're going to try to actually highlight these players to put a face to the name and a name to the team. Kind of like the NBA did, and now maybe it went awry for the NBA because now players seem to have too much power. But do you think that MLB's new marketing strategy of highlighting superstars is a necessary thing? Do you think that it is going to change much? And... Do you hope that more superstars grow from this? Well, I think it's a smart thing. You know, I think that the the league understands that uh, the power is in its players and its stars, and I think you can kind of see it uh, more so in the last year or two than maybe at any point in the four or five years prior to that. Um, you've got Syndergaard uh, guest starring on Game of Thrones this year. Well, he's not guest starring, but he's an extra. You know, and he's he's getting involved with that. Uh, if you walk down at Times Square here in New York. You see Chris Bryant on a billboard for Express. You know the, these are the the, the younger, more uh, stars with like kind of bigger personalities are reaching out into other areas, and I think that's really good for the game. And I don't think anybody would say that it's not good for the game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't see how it can't help. Right. Yeah. So it's just something that the baseball hater will bring up. Oh, you got all these great players, but nobody knows who they are. Nobody cares about them. So Rob Manfred, being a proactive. I think it's fair to say you could call him a proactive commissioner. He's being yeah. proactive and he's trying to combat that. He's trying to make Mike Trout larger than life. He's trying to make, you know, even like a guy like Jose Altuve. That's a guy who baseball fans know and yeah. love and appreciate, but the average sports fan may not know who this guy is. Meanwhile, if he continues on the path that he is, he's a future Hall of Famer right. and he's a really interesting guy. It, so, baseball has a unique situation too and a unique setup because if you look at the the players that fans know about, right, baseball fans, they know 30 prospects from every team or not 30 from every team, but they know a number of baseball prospects. fans will know a ton of prospects just as well as they know Mike Trout, right? And baseball is really the only sport where that's a thing, right? So you could be a football fan and also be a college football fan. Those are two separate things. You can be an NBA fan and be a college basketball fan. Or Those are two separate or things. Or only one or the other, if, you, if you're that right. type of guy. You don't even have to be. But to be a baseball fan now, you know everybody on your team, and then you know the 15 guys who could make your team in the future, right? So there's like a, a lot of attention being spread out across the league, and there's so many players in the league. There's 725 players at every moment in the league. And then there's about... 50 to 100 famous prospects at every point, too. So you have to, like, you know, people, they, you have to just realize that, like, people are focusing on a lot of things at one time, and that kind of might take some attention away from the stars in your game when you're focusing on and hyping up players, which we do a lot, um, players who haven't even made the big leagues yet. And right. that's what people are interested in. So 
Like, if you talk to a Yankee fan who's been only even semi-tapped in this year, right. the guys who they're talking about are Glaybar Torres, sure. who's not even going to start the year on, He's the, on the team. He's 19 years old. You know what I mean? So exactly. it, it is really interesting. And You have these guys becoming stars way earlier, right? So now Mike Trout was a star before he even made the major leagues. And so now maybe because of that, you're taking away some of their star potential on the back end, right? But it's a give and a take. You have fans that are in, invested in these guys for years before they even make the majors. So that's a part that doesn't really get brought up very often. And the MLB is probably the only major sport that has successfully built a farm system, a minor league system. Right. The NBA has the D-League, but it... Right, no, you don't hear anybody saying, oh, look at the Knicks having the D-League. You know, he's coming to save the franchise. It doesn't Absolutely work that way. not. It doesn't even exist in the NFL. Right. In hockey, it does exist and it's rather successful. But as we all know, and sorry hockey fans, it's just not... Big news. No one really cares. In the grand scheme of things, no one really cares about hockey. Sorry to say it. And think about the pool of players, right? So the NBA, every team has basically five players that can be, could be the most popular player on the team or could be a star or whatever. How big are the rosters? 12, 13? Yeah, Baseball 13. has 25 guys on the roster, and everyone's valuable to the roster. And I think my favorite thing about baseball, and like you said before, how you know there's the talk about how it's struggling and it needs to get back up, and it is convoluted because... Locally, baseball is as strong as it's ever been. That's true. The local TV numbers. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't. I'm not privy to seeing them, but you hear that they're as strong as ever, if not better than ever. They're making more money than they ever have. Locally, it's fine. So basically, people are seeing that globally, fact, it's fine too. Financially, oh, it's globally, doing very, it's fine too. very well. People see that when there's a primetime game on ESPN on a Wednesday night, and you have the Royals versus, um, I, the Rockies. You have Royals Rockies, and nobody watches. Like, that makes sense because why the hell would a New York Mets fan care about Royals versus Rockies? Why the hell would a Rockies fan care about Mets versus Marlins? It's it's a fair, fair thing, but people have to remember that baseball is still strong locally, and that's why someone may love Glebar Torres as much as they love Gary Sanchez, and Glebar Torres isn't even going to be on the roster to start the year. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way, but at the same time, it is what makes baseball such a beautiful thing. And, and baseball is is really doing great by like almost every conceivable metric, um, you know, on the whole. Also, so I feel like a lot of this talk is kind of premature, and I know it's like, you know, it's what it's the angle that a lot of people want to take. But it, if you look at attendance numbers, way up. TV deals way up. There's more money in the game than ever before. TV deals way up. <laughs> yeah, historic, historically, historically high. So. You know, it, it is kind of much to do about nothing, but it is also something that the commissioner is focused on, and that makes it a story. So I'm glad that we talked about that. I think it's something necessary. I think if we didn't bring up the whole pace of play and the and the speed of the game and, you know, the possible downfalls that baseball might be facing, if we didn't bring that up, it would be malpractice just because it is talked about so much. But if you have any consensus from myself and Joe Trezza, baseball's fine. And if, and if last year's World Series is any indication... Right. We're on a good path, yeah. us baseball people, and even the people who say aren't specifically baseball fans, they did hear a lot about the sport last year. Oh, there was, was great storylines. And the World Series was in New York the year before that, so it's 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 not really hurting. Right. You know? So all this BS you hear, don't worry about it. All you have to worry about now is how your team is looking, and that's what we're going to get into. Uh, but again, this is the Sports Blog New York podcast. You can find it on iTunes and Google Play by simple, simply searching Sports Blog New York podcast or go to sportsblognewyork.com, click on the podcast tab, click any of those articles, and you can get led to iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And if you like what you've been hearing, subscribe, rate, and review. I know uh, I mentioned this on the pod last week. We had a guy named GarbageMan75. You know who that is? 
No? No, I don't know who that is. Neither do I. If Garbage Man 75 is listening, tweet at me, at SportBlogNYC, which is our Twitter, or my personal account, which is Pete underscore Kennedy 81, or you can tweet at Joe Trez if you like him, and that's at Joe Trez, two Zs, no A. Garbage Man 75 left a nice review on iTunes, but I don't know who it is, and I, I wish I wish he showed himself, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, let's get into some Mets and Yankees stuff, because obviously this is the Sports Blog New York podcast, so we got to have a little focus on the New York teams. And then we'll get in a little NL preview, a little AL preview, some big storylines for the year. Um, instead of doing a little coin flip action, who do you want to start? you want to start in the in Queens or you want to start in the Bronx? Do what, where do I want to start? Yeah, I'm going to let you, you know, I, I want to start control. in Brooklyn. That's where we are. We already started in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, I don't know. Let's do Yankees. All right. So we'll talk about Yankees. And actually, you know, that reminds me. We have a Twitter question. We have a couple Twitter questions out there tonight. So I'll bring one up. Because it's relevant to the Yankees, right? So one person tweeted at Sportblog NYC, and his name is Mutsi. So he's at Mutsi with a couple Ys on the end. He said, and this is a good way to start the Yankee talk, is taking off Friday, November 3rd too early or late for the Yankee parade? Well, Mutsi's got some moxie. You know? <laughs> that was good. Mutsi's got some moxie. He's, uh, he's an optimistic guy. Which is what the Yankees have been pushing for a while now, right? Optimism, wait for the future, and it's almost here. So, uh, look, I mean, there are more people than than you might think who have picked the Yankees to to make the playoffs. To be year. a dark horse, yeah, a little bit, yeah. And uh, the fact of the matter is, the Yankees don't really lose very often, and they've got some really uh, is it they've got a top heavy roster, but it's it's good top heavy, you know. It's, it's some really talented guys there, so. Who knows? I mean, everyone else is picking the Red Sox, and it's a tough division. But um, I, I certainly wouldn't bet on it. But you know, Greg Bird can can emerge, and and Gary Sanchez can be great. And the starting pitching is really the, the biggest question mark, though. And you know, I want to bring up Gary Sanchez because there's some interesting news about him specifically uh, as of late. But I was listening to a different podcast, kind of just doing some research on some uh, podcasts in the area, and the guy who was the host was a Yankees fan. And he said along the lines of, not a direct quote by any means, he was like, oh, man, it's been so long. Like We need the Yankees to get back in the World Series. Yeah. And he was being somewhat sarcastic but was also being serious. And I couldn't have been more frustrated. Like A Yankee fan had one bad year Spoiled. last year. And now they're saying, oh, thank God we have all these prospects coming up. We're going to be good again this year. Do you think they're getting too high on all these young guys too soon and putting too much pressure on them? Or do you think it's actually possible for the likes of Greg Bird, Gary Sanchez, Glebar Torres to come up in a couple months uh, to to run the AL East and either catch a wild card or beat the Red Sox? Right. So the dangerous thing about prospects, right, is always that when when a group or when a team has a, a group of them, right, the dangerous thing is to always think that they're all going to emerge and be superstars at the same time, right? Even when they all do come up and are good together, like what the Royals did a few years ago, right, when they had... Escobar, Hosmer, Sal Perez, all these guys, Lorenzo Cain come up at the same time. That's best case scenario. They all form a cohesive unit, right? But no, you know, a lot of them weren't all-stars before they won that championship. Like They're not four of the best players in baseball. Most of right? them still so, aren't all-stars. Right. You know, they're not four of the best players in baseball, right? So when we think of these prospects with the Yankees, we think Sanchez, best players, Bird, Best first baseman, Clint Frazier, best center fielder, whatever he's, you know, wherever he's going to play in the outfield. Aaron Judge, 50 home runs. Like, that's not going to happen, okay? Like, they're not all going to be 
the four best players in baseball. More likely what usually happens is that you have a group of six or seven and three or four are really good and, and three or four disappoint. I mean, look at what the Mets in their, in their heralded rotation, right? None of those guys have pitched five days in a row yet. No. Not in four years, five years, right? DeGrom, Syndergaard, Harvey, Wheeler, Mats, they still haven't done it. They haven't gone five in a row. And it doesn't seem to happen. Not, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen soon. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And, like, and, and you know, a lot, of them, a lot of them are very talented. Yeah. And they, a lot of them have, are, are compiling very impressive resumes. resumes. But the point is, like, they, they still haven't all done it at the same time. So be careful. Uh, you know, Sanchez looks like a star. Greg Bird looks like John Olerud. Uh Aaron Judge looks like Giancarlo Stanton Light which is Chris Carter. So it's like, you know, there's a kind of a big big gap there. We, the, the point is these guys still haven't developed yet. So And most of them haven't your seen... your expectations? It's the big league. Actually, not, I'm not even going to say most of them. None of them have seen even a full half of a season yet. They haven't. So, you know, Yankees fans, take it easy. If you guys make a run this year, that is great. And it is not out of the realm of possibilities. But you can't expect it. You just can't sit back and say, oh, I can't wait for Gary Sanchez to hit 40 home runs, and I can't wait for Aaron Judge to be Giancarlo Stanton. You know what because the best, best then, case scenario is? Is that I'm sorry for interrupting you. Oh, it's oh, fine. You're, you're the guy here. Um, the best case scenario is that they're, they all play this, this season, and they're competitive, and they learn what that's like, and then next season they take off. And when Frazier comes up and when Glabar comes up, then they have guys like Sanchez and Bird who are young but can still provide leadership as well. And have been around the block once or twice. Right. So let's talk about Gary Sanchez, that recent news I mentioned before. So it has come out recently that he is going to be slotted in the two-hole in the lineup. That is something that an average baseball fan will look at and be like, what the? Wasn't that guy cranking dingers all year when he was up last year? Why is he batting second? Can you give a little reasoning behind that? Well, that's kind of, you're right, that when, when you say that a, a more of a traditional baseball fan, I guess, would look at that in kind of a, you know, with, in a kind of an odd way, but it is kind of in line with the the kind of recent and newer thinking, sabermetrically oriented thinking that a lot of uh, managers and GMs are using to construct their teams now. So the Yankees aren't the the first team to put their quote unquote best player in the two hole, which is what traditionally teams have done with the three hole. So the Cubs put Chris Bryant, who is their most dynamic player, in the two hole. The Angels put Mike Trout in the two hole. Last year, the Pirates eventually put Andrew McCutcheon in the two-hole, right, when he was still their best player. So that is kind of in line with this new age thinking. And, and the, the reasoning is is because the two-hitter gets X amount of at-bats more a year than the three-hitter, right? It's something like 50 or 60 throughout the course of a season. So the thinking is, let's get Gary Sanchez up as many times as possible. And you, as many times as possible would be the leadoff position. However, if you have a good leadoff hitter, you can also get him uh, up almost as many times as possible and possibly with a runner on base. So they're trying to maximize their offensive output. Right. So if you think about it, uh, and I, what, who's the player that has been recently slotted in the, in the leadoff spot that I'm losing his name right now, but he's not a guy who you think of as a traditional leadoff hitter. Was it Chris Bryant? It's Kyle Schwarber. Oh, it's Schwarber. Schwarber. Yeah. So Kyle Schwarber is a guy you would just look at and say, yeah, he should bat third, yeah. fourth, or fifth. And now they're putting him in the leadoff spot that, as long as he the, can get on base right. and you know be a little bit of a run producer at the at the one hole right. and be on base for Chris Bryant. That's kind of an interesting situation, though, because what's putting Schwarber in the leadoff spot is the fact that their three-hitter, Anthony Rizzo, is a lefty. 
and Ben Zobris is a switch hitter. So, oh wait, wait, can I, can I just say something real quick? What? Can you just imagine a pitcher, you know, warming up, first game of the year, all of a sudden Kyle Schwarber bats leadoff. Right. God forbid you get him out. You got to face Chris Bryant. Right. And Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo. In the first inning, right, and that's another <laughs> like that's another kind of like reason that they're doing this. So Girardi was on the was on radio today, and the first reason he said that they were doing it was that they wanted to get all these guys up in the first inning, mm. right. So that's an important thing. So the thinking is if you can get to a lead early, you have this great bullpen, and then the game's over. So it's maximizing offensive potential and scoring as early as possible. That's why these teams are doing it. But the Cubs one is a little different of a situation because Schwarber is a very very atypical leadoff hitter. The only comparison really is uh, Carlos Santana, who hit leadoff for the Indians last year, most of the year, got on base a lot. They went to the World Series. Um, now, you'd think traditionally with the Cubs roster, that guy like Zobris would be better off for the one hole, but like I said, his switch hitting ability, Madden likes him in the four hole behind Rizzo. So if you have Schwarber, Bryant, Rizzo, Zobris, you have left, right, left, possibly right. Right. And that's, I think, the thinking. That is interesting. So I guess we'll see how the experiment goes for Gary Sanchez. It's obviously a change. He did not bat second last year. But let's get the guy some at bat, see if he can get on base, and see if he could run produce like he did last year. So it would be interesting thing. I mean, the Mets, I think, we're gonna, which we're going to get into now, are probably a easier pick to be a better team than the Yankees. But I think it's fair to say that the Yankees have a lot more fun storylines that are going on for them this year with all their young guys and with their few older guys who are hanging around, they can be a really fun team to watch and keep up with. You know, in a way, as a Mets fan, um, as always, I'm a little jealous of the Yankees right now with all their young talent that are position players. So that's I be before, the, Mets, the Mets are probably a playoff team, man. If I were you, I would enjoy it because it doesn't oh, come along very often, you know. I agree, and we're about to get into that. But real quick before we move on to, from the Yankees, their Vegas over-under, the last one I saw is 83.5. So what's the gut say? Over-under Yankees, 83.5 wins. Under, but not by much. So you think they're about 500? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. I don't think the rotation's strong enough, um, and I don't think the middle relief is strong enough either. Interesting. And uh, it's, a loaded, it's a loaded east offensively, so you're going to need pitching. I tend to agree. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to say under as well. I would love to disagree with you just for the sake of disagreeing, but what's the point of that? We're moving on from the Yankees anyway. It's going to be an interesting season for them. But Lots be, to look forward to. Exactly. A Lots to look forward to for the Yankees. A lot of cool storylines. So obviously we're going to keep up with them. Uh, but let's get into the Mets. For, so they're the team that, you know, you could actually say should be a playoff team this year. If the Mets do not make the playoffs. And obviously, when you talk about baseball predictions, I'm just going to throw this out there before we fully get into it. Baseball predictions are probably the hardest predictions to make across all of sports. I mean, yeah. You have the longest season. You have 180 games. You know, injuries happen. And as a Mets fan, we know that way too well. So, Noah Syndergaard, Jacob deGrom, Matt Harvey, Steven Matz, Gesellman is the rotation right now. There's a really strong chance two of those guys end up being banged up for different portions of the season. So, it's obviously not something we're going to you know take into consideration while breaking down the team for opening day. But it's something that, as a Mets fan, unfortunately, you just have to keep in the back of your mind. But without further ado, let's start breaking down the Mets. Uh, one of the, my favorite storylines going on with the Mets right now is the Mets outfield. So in a way, it's crowded because of the players that are slotted in the outfield and the players that we've got used to seeing over the past couple of years. But on, on the other hand, 
it may not be as strong as it as it seems. So you have Cespedes shoot in for left field. Granderson's going to be shoot in for center, which isn't a great thing for the Mets, I don't think, defensively. And then you have Jay Bruce in right field. Granderson did show that he could play it last year a lot better than a lot of people expected. Um, he made that amazing catch in the in the uh, in the wild card game against the Giants that a lot of that people forget because they lost that game. But and, then you um, have well, let me just finish real quick before you, and then I'll let you take over and you'll just go off on the Mets outfield. So you got Cespedes left, Granderson center. Jay Bruce and Wright, and then you got two guys who Mets fans seem to grow to love in Michael Conforto and Juan Lagares. Juan Lagares is a little banged up as well. Kind of a, a logjam there. What do you think is going to play out with the Mets outfield, and do you see it as a strength or a weakness? Well, it looks like Conforto is going to make the team at this point, right? And um, I think Lagares' injury has a lot to do with that. Um, I think in a perfect world, they'd like to see him go down and rake a triple-A a little bit and, and really get his his footing for the season if he's not going to get a lot of at-bats early on uh, with the big club. Um, but I think they're going to carry him at this point. Now, um, you know, T.J. Rivera could also play a little bit of the outfield if necessary. Jose Reyes can also play a little bit of the outfield if necessary. They're doing a lot oh, of I like things. the idea of that, by the way. But also, T.J. Rivera, they try to know him. him. Big fan of his. He's a guy who may not fit the whole... Strikeout Walker home run because yeah. he's actually a contact hitter, but he drives the ball. Though he's I the antithesis love... of the modern hitter, right? And the right. fact that he's that he's making it, and he, he wasn't a draft pick. You know, he was a he was a non prospect, and the fact that he even got to the big leagues in this era, and that he can perform by playing his game is actually really admirable. Um, and it's kind of really nice to see. And you watch him hit in spring yeah. training. I mean, the guy is a he's a gap hitter. Oh yeah. And as a Mets fan, I love to have him on my team. In, even though it, get, it goes against that efficiency era that we talked about earlier, yeah. he's a guy who's going to hit some doubles. He should be on base a lot, and he's a pretty solid fielder. So you can't ask for too much more. He's got a lot of back control, and that's his really his his main tool. And uh, the Mets would like to see him walk a little more. And if he walked a little more and 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 kept the back control that he has and his ability to hit to all fields, then um, he'd be a really valuable piece for them, and he would get a lot of at bats um, because he's versatile. And the Mets are doing this with a lot of players now with. With Rivera, with Wilmer Flores, with uh, even with Jose Reyes, they're giving them a lot of different gloves. If so, if they need them in a certain place, they can move guys around, and that's happening all across baseball. Um, guys aren't really locked into positions anymore. And uh, David Wright, you know, the question marks around him mean that the Mets need somebody to fill time at third, which means they need they might need somebody to fill time at first against left-handed pitching. You know, so there there are options for these guys to play and, and opportunities for it. Now, is Conforto to first base? Is that a possibility? Uh, they, they toyed with that idea early in camp, but I, um, I'm pretty sure they scrapped it. Um, Rivera's played some first, and Flores is going to play a lot of first, especially against lefties. I do like that. Yeah. Uh, but I think the outfield is a, is a strength overall. I mean, it, it sounds like a, like a logistical problem and in a way that it, it is, but in another way, it's not a bad thing to have a lot of good players, which is what the Mets feel they have. So... Um, I think they expect Granderson to hold his own in center field. Uh, they expect Bruce to hit like he did in Cincinnati, and they expect Cespedes to be the best player on the team. I tend to agree, and I had a note on Jay Bruce that I brought up last week during the podcast. Um, Mets fans tend to have a bad taste in their mouth with Jay Bruce because of his slump last year once he joined the team. If you look at this guy's track record, you can almost chalk up year in, year out. 250 average, 25 home runs, 90 RBIs. If he puts together that season, should the Mets be happy? 
Well, yeah, I think that's what they're expecting from him. And um, should you know, Mets fans understand well, and be happy with he, that as well? He, I think that fans should understand that he was a little overwhelmed last year when mm-hmm. he first got here, and things kind of snowballed on yeah. him as they tend to do. You came from the worst team in the league to a in contention, yeah. fighting for a spot team in a very small market, and he had the best of intentions, and he really has worked to make sure that doesn't happen again. So I think that we'll see more along the lines of the Jay Bruce that people expect than compared to the Jay Bruce that we saw last year. I'm glad to hear that. All right, so let's talk about, and also actually before we move on to my next point, um, what you said about having kind of too many good players is never a bad thing. That really does combat the whole injury effect, right? So say Cespedes goes down for two weeks, you should now feel comfortable that Michael Conforto is one of your backup outfielders. Definitely. Say Granderson is really struggling like he was at certain points last year, you could sit him for a week or, or give him Conforto and Lagarde, those spot starts that maybe uh, you know sparks a plug under Granderson, sparks a plug under them. So it's never a bad thing to have too many players along such a long season. Certainly. So. And, and the age of the 162 player is kind of over. You know, there's only like one or two guys last year who played every single game. Did I say 180 before? I, I might have said 180. I don't think. I, I think you're okay. Oh yeah. Ah. Yeah, I think you're fine. All right, go but, on. But the the point is, like, you know, not a lot of guys play every day anymore, and it's so they can be as you know they can build up strength and be as good as they can when they do play, and that happens all over the league. So depth is more important now more than ever, and the Mets have depth, and that that's one thing they haven't had in the last four or five years. They haven't had a very good bench, and now Collins finally has one. It'll be interesting to see how he deploys it. And now before I ask you about this next guy who the Mets didn't get to see a lot last year, I just want to mention, you mentioned utility players and how it's a really big thing for the Mets and a lot of teams across the board. All over the place. There is an article in Sports Illustrated. You know, I, I plucked out their MLB preview magazine a couple weeks ago, or a week or so ago. Yeah, I read it. Uh, so they have a little thing on utility players. In 2006, there was 52 registered utility players in the league. Last year, there was 67. So... Obviously, a lot more teams are incorporating players who can do more things. The Brock Holtz of the world are becoming more and more relevant and more and more meaningful to a team. So the fact that the Mets have these guys who you know, can play different positions, can spot start here, can spot start there, it's really a, a useful thing. Makalaiti, Pete, I'm a little offended that you took Sports Illustrated's article about that and not my own. Now I understand I wrote it last summer. So I'll pull it up here for you. It's the first time you're seeing it. Let's use that for the sake of... All right, yeah. The sake of and for, you know what? On the sportsblognewyork.com article that uh, will hold this podcast as well as well as it being on iTunes and Google Play, I'll put a link to this article as well. Thank you very much. And so, I'm just kidding. I'm not actually offended. <laughs> uh, the point is, I, I wrote about this last summer, actually, because we were seeing this revolution in, in, in versatility, right? And it's what teams are really valuing now more than anything. You see it uh, in headlines where the... Like the Rockies, they signed Ian Desmond, who was a shortstop, went to the outfield. Now they're signing him to play. They gave him $70 million to play first base. He's never played first base before in his life. And that was kind of a, a microcosm of things that are happening all across the league. And um, I will look for the exact stats for a second, if you just give me a second. Yeah, why the point you look- is, okay. there were more guys last year that played four or five positions, or three or four, whatever it was, multiple positions, than there had been... I think it was, like, ever in the game or, like, more than the last, like, 10 years combined. And I'll find the stats for you on that in um, a second. Yeah, so while you look for that, I'll pose the question for you. Do you think that this is coming from the whole prospect situation of Major League Baseball where these teams are going into the high schools and going into colleges and finding these prospects and saying, we don't care if you're a third baseman or a first baseman or a right fielder or whatever. If you're a shortstop or you're a center fielder or you're just an athlete – and you're a good hitter, 
We're going to take you, and we're trusting ourselves to teach you to play first if you're a shortstop or to teach you to play left field if you're a third baseman. Do you think that play comes into effect the way prospecting is working? Well, I think the main thing now is just the fact that teams are valuing offense above all else even more than they ever have. And it goes back to what we were saying before about how good pitching is, right, and how, how scarce balls in play are. That's because pitching is so good that hitting is harder than it's ever been. And especially with the revamped use of uh, specialization in the bullpen, where you have all these guys you could throw at high velocities and come in and get outs, teams are looking for offense above all else. And the result is that I wrote this in July, right? So it was about half the season done. And 55 players had made appearances at a middle infield position and the outfield from April to July, the first two months of last season. 55. And that was already more than did so in all but six seasons since 1901. Now, I don't have the updated numbers on that. Maybe Sports no, Illustrated it, does. It, okay. it got to 67 by the end of the year. 67, right. So that's, I, I would imagine that's the most uh, of all, you know, it of is. all time. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. The point is that these guys are making these adjustments at the major league level when they used to make these adjustments at the minor league level. And then, So a shortstop used to uh, convert to center field in Class A, and then when he got to big leagues, he was a center fielder. Now, in the major leagues, he's a shortstop and a center fielder, and that's the big difference. So, just to think about that off the Mets again real quick, think about Ben Zobrist. He's a guy who got paid for the Cubs, right? Yeah. A guy like him in the past, and you know, this guy's still in the league, but if you think about maybe he was in his prime closer to five to ten years ago, Martin Prado. That guy was never getting paid like a real big league player because, you know, he was going to play some games at third, second base, left right. field. Now that guy, like Brock Holt and Ben Zobrist, are so damn valuable for a team. It's valued way more. They're becoming paid players. They're becoming big-time players. They're becoming all-stars. So it is really interesting. And like you mentioned, the Mets have a couple guys like Wilmer Flores, even Jose Reyes later in his career, who they're going to throw in the outfield. They're going to throw at first base. They're going right. to do this and that. And it makes for a really interesting lineup because there's more pitchers on a roster than ever before. Right. And this is the money quote what Terry Collins said to me last year because I, I would list all these guys for him, right? I listed... Colton Wong was trying to make the jump from second to center field. Uh, Brandon Drury and Chris Owings from the Diamondbacks were doing similar things. And Terry said, they're all athletes. One of the things we're finding today is that player development continues in the big leagues. It doesn't stop anymore. And that's the main main difference. And that is a beautiful thing to hear from your manager as well, that now you know when Michael Conforto is in the league and maybe he's not starting every day, he's getting better at these other positions and he's still developing. And, and the fact that Terry Collins said that to you, which is pretty cool as well, um, is really a good thing to hear for a Mets fan trusting their manager. Cause you know, Terry comes with some other, um, let's, we'll call, I'll call it a faux pas with sometimes his honesty in the media comes back to bite him amongst the New York media. So it doesn't really affect the clubhouse, but you know what I mean? Oh, he's very forthright. And at this point, he was, um, the Mets were internally discussing whether they were going to try, they, Reyes had just come back and they were discussing whether they were going to try Reyes out in center field, whether they were going to try Wilma Flores out maybe in right field, and ultimately they, they decided to not do that in the middle of the season and wait till the spring training, and, and it was just a hard thing to do on the fly, but the fact is that they're always thinking about it, and it's, it's kind of a, it's becoming more of an option for them because they want those bats to stay in the line. All right, so the guy I wanted to ask you about, which we got off track with the utility stuff, um, the guy who the Mets fans didn't see much last year was Lucas Duda. He's back. He's been showing some pop during spring training. What are your expectations for Lucas Duda coming into this season? Well, I think if Duda's healthy, he's a 25 home run bat. I don't think he fits into this uh, kind of scenario where he would play another position. Um, I don't, also don't think Conforto would. 
Um, really the only other position Duda can play is the outfield, and like you said, the Mets are kind of loaded there. Um, so, But I think if he's healthy, he's going to hit. He's going to get the majority of at-bats against right-handed pitching. Um, and I think that the Mets sorely missed him last year in the lineup. Uh, even though they hit a, ho- a lot of home runs, they didn't score very many runs. And um, he's a guy who, when he gets hot, especially, he can carry a team for two weeks. That's right. what they need. So let's do what we do with the Yankees because we want to touch on some uh, other teams, other storylines, and we want to stay within the hour on this podcast. We're getting in on 50 minutes right now. So the over-under right now, the last one I saw for the Mets, is 87. Gut, over. Gut feeling. Over. O- over. over. Oh, yeah. a, a confident over. No, no yeah, I think the Mets win the East. Um, and I think they I, – I picked them to win the East last year. A lot of teams did. And last year was kind of a worst-case scenario for them in terms of injuries. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine that happening again for this team. And, uh, and at the end of the day, they have probably the best rotation in all of baseball, and they've got a lot of power in that lineup. And I think their window is, if it's not closing next year or the year after that, it's they're in the sweet spot of it right now, and I think they're going to take advantage of it. Awesome. So I'm, I'm going to take the push. I'm taking I'm taking 87 wins for the Mets this year. I think they're shoot like not a shoe win. You can't say that, but I think they're a playoff team, and I think anything less will be a disappointment. So health. Aside, I think the Mets are a very strong team. They should be a fun team to watch, and let's let's hope to see them in the playoffs this year. For all of our sakes, Mets fans and your sake as a beat writer for the Mets. Playoffs, uh, playoffs are fun to work. So I would, you know, that'd be that'd be that'd be fun. That'd be awesome. All right, again, this is the Sports Blog New York podcast. I'm Peter Kennedy, joined here with Joe Trezza, MLB.com writer. We're gonna get into a quick runaround of some other divisions in the league, okay. and we're gonna end up real quick. Yeah. So right. let's start where we just ended with the Mets in the NL East. What are the other storylines, and how do you see the NL East shaking up? Biggest thing for me is Bryce Harper's season with the Nationals. Um, I think the Nationals are a playoff team as well. Um, look for him to bounce back significantly because he was hurt last year for most of it, and he kind of got into a funk in the middle of the season that he couldn't um, kind of get out of. But they have a great cast there, and they're going to be a very dynamic team also. It's going to be really fun, those Mets-Nats battles throughout the season, I think. Any other interesting storylines regarding the NL East? I, I'm interested in the Phillies a little bit. You know, they've, they've got some potential. The, Marl- uh, the Braves have an interesting veteran team, I would say. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the Marlins rebound from uh, Jose Fernandez's death and, and what they kind of how they kind of move forward from that yeah. from a franchise standpoint. A sad story, and we hope the best for the Marlins franchise. Uh, now let's hop over to what a lot of people are calling the best division in baseball, the NL Central. What's your gut there? What, what, what are you thinking about? I, I can't really bet against the Cubs, to be honest. They have the most complete team in the league. Um, I think the Cardinals are a playoff team again, though. Uh, it was kind of weird not seeing them in the playoffs last year. And um, they've, they've added Dexter Fowler, who adds two things they didn't have last year, which were uh, speed and defensive uh, outfield defense. So I think that's really big for them. Um, the Pirates probably fall short, and the other teams are rebuilding. All right, NL West, storylines. I think it's whether or not the Dodgers can finally make the jump from this juggernaut kind of Braves-ish team from you know 20 years ago. Like they they are a divisional lock probably again mm-hmm. to win that division. I think it's interesting to see whether or not they can take the next step. And the Giants are going to be better too because their bullpen was atrocious last year, and Mark Melanson really helps them on the back end. And the Giants are a team, as we know, in the past eight, ten years that they're they're going to be in the race no matter what. Sure. Uh, so let's hop over now to the American League. Let's start in the East. A lot of people are chalking up the Red Sox as a top three team in the whole MLB. They're stacked with talent. What do you think about the Red Sox? I think people are underplaying the amount, um, the, the void that Big Poppy's going to leave on, on that team. Um, I think David Price's injury is a concern, and I also 
while I would love to see Chris Sale dominate in a, in a huge market with spotlight on him and all that, you have to be careful about, especially Red Sox players in their first years, um, it's a major adjustment playing in that park and that atmosphere. So I don't think the, the Red Sox are a lock. I actually have the Blue Jays uh, taking that division. And, um, really? and the Orioles and the are also competitive. So, And the Orioles, I think you could look at the Orioles similarly to the San Francisco Giants as a team that's well-managed, decent talent across the board. They got a great closer in Britain. Um, you can't count them out with Buck Showalter. The difference is they have a dynamic offense while the Giants have uh, a major advantage in the, in the starting staff. So, uh, But Manny Machado is going to be a top four player in the league this year. So I will watch out for that. And uh, real quick, bounce back over to the NL West. You didn't bring up your boy, Nolan Arenado. Yeah, a lot of people are, are high on the Rockies this year. I, I kind of think they're a few years away, to be honest. But he's, again, he is a top five player in baseball who doesn't get enough love. And, um, you know, he excels in that park. And uh, they're exciting. They're young. I just think the Giants and the Dodgers are too established. And uh, back over to the AL East, the Blue Jays are a little bit older now. Kind of their only player, not their only player, but their only top player left in their prime is Josh Donaldson. You know, Bautista's a little bit older. Uh, Morales is on the Blue Jays now as right. well. Uh, he's a little older. You don't think that's, that's a problem? I think it's uh, the ball flies in that park, and I think Morales is going to provide, as he has always done, more value than people give him credit for. And I also think the Blue Jays have an underrated starting staff, maybe top five in the whole league. So um, I think they have an advantage there on the, uh, a lot of the AL East teams. All right, boom. AL Central. Cleveland Indians. I'm actually not picking them to repeat. I think um, we should learn something from the last several teams who have pitched deep into October, even into November. Uh, it's very hard to repeat, especially when you when you rely a lot on your pitching. Um, look at the Mets last year. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of their pitchers went down after after big workloads going deep into the playoffs the year before. Uh, the Royals, even you know, they had a major regression last year after winning the World Series. So, Two World Series in a row, then a yeah, major regression. That that stuff kind of wears on you. It's really tough to get there again. And I don't know if the Indians do. My sleeper here is the Tigers. I think they have a great core, especially position players, and um, they've got a. Top-heavy starting staff that if they perform, they can you know kind of surprise some people. Awesome. And how about the AL West? A lot of talent out in the AL West. Yeah. You got the Astros. A lot of people like picking them. They're like the hipster team of the MLB recently. Yeah. And then, of course, the Texas Rangers are always a quality team. And then you got Mike Trout out in L.A., but they're not a great team. What do you think about the AL West? Well, they've got the two hipster teams, I think. They've got the Astros and the Mariners. Everyone always loves the Mariners. True. Um, with their revamped roster and a lot of their speed and versatility and all that. Um but I still think the Rangers um, have the best roster in the AL West, front to back. All right, so let's just do this. Why not? World Series predictions. Who are your two teams you think will make the World Series? Obviously, predictions are nearly impossible, but who do you got? I know I just said it's tough to repeat, but I think the Cubs kind of don't fall into that because they have such a balanced and dynamic roster, front to back. Uh, so I think it's Cubs, Rangers, World Series, and Cubs win. Oh, back to back for the Cubs. Mm-hmm. I love it. Popular pick, but also a very sound pick. Can't yeah, I think, they, I think they have enough to do it, you know, because they, they had five starters last year who were unbelievable. Even if three of them are 80% as good as they were, they probably still win the division, and, and their their offense takes care of the rest. All right, how about this? Who are your MVP picks? Uh, my MVP pick in the American League is Mike Trout, and in the National League it's Giancarlo Stanton. Giancarlo Stanton, yeah, I, I think love he's it. He's got to hit 50 home runs at some point, and I think if he does, he wins the MVP. I like to hear it. I mean, he's an exciting player to watch. The dude sometimes doesn't even rotate his legs when he swings and muscles the ball out of the stadium. All so, arms, four fifty. Yeah. You, you can't get you it's, can't get mad watching him it's, hit. It's ridiculous. Um, what about Cy Youngs? Um, I'm actually trying to like think of what my real predictions were instead of just saying something wrong. Okay, uh, Aaron Sanchez, who won the 
ERA title in the American League last year for the Blue Jays. He gets pushed this year instead of being limited to his innings, and he wins the American League Cy Young. Um, in the National League, Clayton Kershaw wins the Cy Young because he's Clayton Kershaw. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, real quick, throw it off the top of your head again. Who are some guys that people may not hear about who by midway point of the season people may say, holy hell, that guy's a stud. <laughs> Well, like we, you know, we always we said before that everyone knows about the prospects already, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, just off the top of my head, I think uh, Marlins catcher JT Realmuto is in for a big season. On my fantasy team, let's go. Very, very <laughs> good player, very talented. Um, I think Jose De Leon, who was acquired by the Rays this season, impresses a lot of people as a as a rookie. He came from LA on the Logan Forsythe deal. Um, uh, you put me on the spot now, Pete. That was good. Oh, you gave is two. That, is that it? That, that's <laughs> do, I need, do I need to do any more? No, you did good. And the last story, because we just hit an hour, and we're going to keep it at this pretty much. We're going to end up in a minute or two. The the story that's, you know, is it relevant? Maybe not, but it's fun and it's interesting. The man, Eric Timms, who's on the Milwaukee Brewers, yeah, yeah. nicknamed while playing his last three seasons in Korea, God. Right. He literally got the nickname God because he had so many home runs though right. over there. Do you think he could be an MLB player, like a legit player? Yeah, I mean, he was an MLB player, so he knows what to expect. Um, and I think confidence is a it's a huge deal when it comes to hitting, and he's going to see a lot more velo, uh, a lot more velocity in this league, so it's going to be an adjustment. But at the same time, he has a revamped swing, and um, you know he's riding the world right now. So I, I I wouldn't put success against him in that line of the ball in the ballpark the ball fly, flies. So yeah, he could probably make an impact. He's an intriguing storyline nonetheless, though. Hundred percent. He and definitely... also look out for Christian Yelich. I should have said that, but he's one of the best hitters in baseball. Christian Yelich. Kind of highlighted in the World Baseball Classic, yeah. so good for him. Um, also, real quick, I know we said we were done. I just want to bring this guy up again. <laughs> Christian Betancourt, the catcher-pitcher on the Padres. Yeah. Talk about him real quick. That's awesome. Uh, so Christian Be- uh, Betancourt was, is a catcher who is one of the best arms in baseball, and now uh, Padres are trying to maybe create him and turn him into a relief pitcher, maybe like sort of start a little hybrid role so he would be kind of a two-way player if it all works out. Um He's had some spring training appearances, and he's been pretty good. Um, and the Tigers also are looking to con- do the same thing with their former center fielder, Anthony Ghost. Uh, so if you see him coming in in the middle innings in August, that's the same Anthony Ghost that used to hit leadoff for them. So check that out. Wow, super super interesting stuff. And this is my man, Joe Trez. I follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow. That's at Joe Trez with two Zs, no A. My dude, thank you for coming on the podcast. We'll definitely have you back on during the season at some point. See you at the All-Star break. Uh, hopefully before that, okay, okay. right? Come right. on, hopefully before that. Right. This is the Sports Blog New York Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And if you like what you heard, leave a rating and a review because that goes a really long way in the iTunes podcast world. Uh, my name is Peter Kennedy. Joe Trezor. Hopefully you enjoy the show and you're definitely going to enjoy the MLB season. Have a good one.